0: So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, I want to invite you to turn with me please in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Today we continue with part 6 of our ongoing study through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. and Today is entitled Cain. And as you're turning in your Bibles, I want to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping the Family Life Center to turn in your Bibles as well to Genesis chapter 4. And before we read this great text, let me remind you where we've been. If you're just now joining us, I want you to make sure to go back to our website and catch up a little bit with the previous sermons. We've kind of set a table for this feast. We set a table, we framed out this conversation in five previous sermons. Uh, sermons and we have been saying that this is different Bible Uh, it's not science it's not history it's theology it's faith it's well it's intended to stoke and provoke something down in the soul of the reader uh, to recognize as we noticed in chapter one that this God is 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 unlike any God that this God is is a God who out of chaos can bring order even now we looked in chapter two and recognized in another story of creation, same God, different telling of this our beginnings, that God not only can create, but can create in such a way as to welcome the created ones into a partnership with God. So he creates the mud, uh, the mud man and the mud woman, and, and out of the clay of the earth creates, the human being with purpose and with vocation and invites them to join with God in the continued co-creation of the world. And what we said these past several weeks has been this. This God who has a triune character, Father, Son, Spirit, exists in, in a, a kind of community of Godhood in which the Father uh, and the Son and the Spirit serve one another in this kind of mutual community of care and love and service and compassion and out of that kind of godhood pours forth a created world a vision for existence that looks like god in which we ourselves are mutually dependent and loving and serving one another and are out for the good uh, outcome of one another right and out of that vision of creation out of that blueprint that we've been reading about in chapters 1 and 2 we saw last week in chapter 3 all hell breaks loose it comes unraveled this original kind of uh, integration where we are integrated with God and God with us and we with one another this begins to unravel or disintegrate because we choose to live outside the boundary freedom In this gorgeous garden that God has made. And we eat from fruit that come from trees that are out of bounds. And when we do, we ended last Sunday recognizing that it creates division and disunity. It creates a kind of dismantling of this this created world that God had in mind. And at the end of chapter 3, we saw various gradations of division where everything is separate from everything else that the serpent is separate from other animals, other animals from Eve, Eve from Adam, Adam from his own sense of soul or self, and humankind separated from God. And now today, we turn the chapter to the post-Eden world to wonder what it looks like after all hell breaks loose. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain was very angry, and so his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You, You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me will, well, they may kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden the reading of the sacred word it's reliable and it can be trusted let's pray Most loving God, in this moment of worship, in this moment in which your people are attentive to you, we confess that we have come from a variety of places and we have brought onto this campus a variety of burdens and concerns and anxieties and hopes. But in these moments that we share with one another and with you, We pray that your Holy Spirit, your very near presence, would be so alive and so so near that we would sense you among us. But not simply in ways that encourage us and make us feel better about the day. We sense your nearness in us and among us, hoping that your presence here changes something. that we are transformed in the heart and in the mind. Lord, may we not gather in this place and, and, and muster together the words and the prayers and the songs simply to lift to you and leave the same. We pray that in what we imagine together, in what we hear and what we see together, you change human hearts, including the one doing the talking now. Transform all of us now. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So now a new theme enters the human saga. Human beings can now make life and take life. In just a moment, we're going to dig deep into this text that we just read. We read about how a curious thing, these created ones, they have a unique skill. They can make more of themselves. They can do what we hear in Genesis 1, 26, God hoped that we might do. Be fruitful and multiply the earth. They can do that. They've got that one figured out. They not only can make life, but tragically we see through the telling of the first fratricide that they can take life as well. And I wonder if before we get into the details of this text and and allow our worshipful imaginations to take us to places of transformation, I wonder if we might be able to confess that even today, we take life and we make life. And I'm not just talking about your birthday and your death day. I'm not talking just about the date when you were born and the date when you die, but as one poet beautifully put it, I'm talking about that dash between those two dates on your tombstone. That in the span of time where you live and breathe and move and have your being, you can make life and you can take life. We make life or take life depending on how we look at the life that comes to us, depending on how we react to the things that happen, to the life that unfolds. How we choose to see, to view, to do our life will determine whether we are life makers or life takers? Will you live your life open with an open hand that gives or receives whatever the Lord gives in God's good grace? Or will you live clenched in such a way as to reveal your fear that there is a scarcity of things and perhaps if I don't cover it and protect it, there won't be enough for me? Will you be a life maker or a life taker? Will you live content with the life that is yours Content with enough breath for one day, food for one day, love for one day, or will you constantly live a life of disappointment because you continue to compare yourself to the good fortune of your neighbor, your coworker, your colleague, your family member? We can be life makers and we can be life takers, and this story has a lot to say about how that works in this human experiment we call life. So today, to move us through this story, to imagine whether we will be life uh, makers or life takers, I want to give us three words. I've just been doing that lately through this series. It's just been kind of fun. So I want to give us three phrases that help navigate, help move us like anchoring points through the journey. And these three words that move us through this sermon today are these. Green-eyed monsters, crouching tigers, brothers' keepers. Green-eyed monsters, crouching tigers, brothers' keepers. We begin with green-eyed monsters. So the text begins with the first two lines of scripture verse 1 and 2 we read them a moment ago now the man knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying I've produced a man with the help of the Lord next she bore Abel now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground stop there for just a moment do you remember just two chapters ago maybe two or three weeks ago when we were in chapter two we said that when God made the first mud man God made that man to be with purpose and vocation he scooped him up out of the clay of the ground and placed him in a garden but not just for no purpose he placed them there in order to till and to keep remember that phrase and that phrase in Hebrew has a nuance to it. Those two words, those words mean not just to till and keep like your slaves, but rather to serve and to nurture the earth. And we said that they were created in order to partner with God. God would say, I will make the ground and you till it and make good stuff grow from it. And I will make the animals and you name them be co-laborers with me in this, in this garden. So you are to till and to keep you will have purpose and there will be a reason for you to wake up in the morning because you get to partner with me says the lord god in the creation of this world but you remember chapter three happens chapter three always happens chapter three always happens there's always the taste of fruit still on our breath from trees where we were not supposed to go near and we saw last week how it all unravels and this beautiful design this potential of Edenic life with God, in which God walks with us in the cool of the day, this all unravels. And the question at the close of chapter three is this: When we turn the page to chapter four, is, is everything undone? Are all bets off? And when we read in the first two verses that they not only had to know how to make life, but Firstborn and secondborn, both of them, one is a tiller and one is a keeper. A tiller and a keeper, reminding us that you can blow it, you can fail, you can start out in a good thing and it look right and beautiful and good and natural and it all fall to pieces and at the end of your chapter 3, God still wants to partner with you. These are echoes that God is not finished with the human race. That there is still evidence that God can till with people and keep with people, nurture and serve alongside people even after sin has ruptured the relationship. It would almost be enough to go home with that, wouldn't it? To think on these things. But I got a lot more notes, so let's keep trucking. So we continue with the next verse. The next verse continues. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel, for his part, brought firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. This is one of the strangenesses of this text. It doesn't make sense to me. They both, in due time, did the thing that they were supposed to do. One is a tiller and one is a keeper. A keeper of sheep, a tiller of the ground. And when they want to respond to the Lord and bring whatever matters most to them, they each bring what matters most to them. And yet God had regard for Abel's gift and not for Cain's gift. And and it doesn't make sense. Now for generations, I mean generations and generations, we have attempted to impose theological understanding on top of that text. We have attempted to use um, theology and doctrine that developed many, many years afterwards to superimpose and bring some sense of understanding from this text. For example, it may be that you... You have heard it said, well, Abel's offering was accepted by God because, well, it was a sheep. It was from a sheep, and a sheep has blood. And so, uh, as the temple system would soon uh, codify later, unless there is the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, and so it sets up a kind of theology of substitutionary atonement. So therefore, well, clearly, the sheep is going to be the one more approved than the fruit of the ground. The trouble is none of that is in the text just a little problem that none of that is said in the text that is later superimposing our own doctrinal prejudices upon the text which is something we should avoid when at all possible another one of the interpretations of this text as to why god would have favor on one and not the other is that some have said well maybe it's because abel meant it from his heart he gave the firstlings, the, the fat portions, the very best, and, and Cain just gave what was left over, what was in abundance, things that he could afford. The other problem is that that's not in the text either. In fact, you back the camera up, you widen the angle, and you realize they both brought what was the very best for each of them to bring, which leaves the third option to interpret this, and this is kind of where I land. How do you understand when God, when God has favor on one and not the other, it's an unexplained action on the part of God. It doesn't sound very snazzy, does it? But it's an unexplained action on the part of God in this text. Do you realize that I think that we we could talk for a whole week about the unexplained actions of God? Not just here, but in your life. In my life. In those seasons when you come across a thing and a problem emerges and a season falls on you like a, like a thunderstorm and, you, and there, nobody can explain why you're going through the thing that you're going through. It's an unexplained action and sometimes you and I will attribute motive to things that happen in this life when perhaps there's, there's no motive. We live in a world that is prone to be suspect to the, the laws of nature and biology and sometimes just it things happen but in the midst of things happening there is the divine action of God that we look for and by God's good grace can discover the trouble is we we ascribe motive to places where there may there may not be motive and and you know what else we do we ask questions and questions are good I want everyone to understand, especially our young people who are, who are growing in this church, that asking questions of God is allowed. It's not off limits. You can ask anything you want of God. Anything that you, that you question or even doubt of God, you ask. But sometimes in our asking, we say things like this. Why? Why, God? Do millions of innocent children suffer every day from hunger and malnutrition and why do they suffer with no access to clean water or, or, or suffer from preventable diseases because they have little or no access to affordable health care? Why is it that there is still uh, sex trafficking in the world and human trafficking even here in Georgia and we ask God questions like, why? But my suspicion is that when we ask God those questions, God wants to ask us the same question. We are partners in this, right? And as I understand it, says the Lord our God, you are followers of my son and have crafted your life in such a way as to live and to be like my son. And some of you even live in wealthy nations with capabilities and power. So my question to you, God might say, is you tell me why. So yeah, (laughs) there are some unexplained actions of God but we've got a few unexplained actions of our own and when Cain came across this unexplained action of God in which he brought the very best and yet he looked upon his brother with favor but not himself or not his own offering the text tells us that it destroyed him that this is the way it reads so Cain was very angry and his countenance his whole demeanor his whole light it just kind of it, it it fell what do you do what do you do when when you've done the very best that you can do and it's not approved and enter into Cain perhaps the most debilitating human Struggle that we share. The struggle of envy. Envy. Jealousy. Do you know what Webster says about envy? This is how Webster defines envy. It's the painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess that same advantage. Well, that makes sense, but do you know that? Oxford goes on to take it a little bit further. This is how Oxford describes it. It's a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, someone else's qualities, someone else's luck. But maybe the most um, expressive, the most emotional, the most colorful, even entertaining description of what envy is when it settles into the human experience comes from Socrates. This is what Socrates said. Envy is the daughter of pride, the author of murder and revenge the begetter of secret sedition the perpetual tormentor of virtue envy is the filthy slime of the soul that, that filthy slime of the soul a venom a poison a quick silver which consumes the flesh and dries up the bones see that there's no cream for that that's not good Proverbs puts it this way about envy. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. When you envy, you feel it at the deepest part of you. And and you feel it at the deepest part because of how you're looking at life. How we view our life determines how we do our life. And so we feel it down in the bones in kind of a a soul sickness because of how we are viewing the circumstances that have come to not just us but our neighbors for whom we are envious in the bible there are a couple of words that describe envy the greek word for envy is a curious one it's thanos can you hear the th sound as in ophthalmology it has to do with the eye Having an evil eye is what envy means in the Greek. An eye that perceives painfully. In other words, two people can look at the same circumstance. And if one is content and one is self-differentiated, one is uh, perfectly fine with the grace that's been given them, but another is not, and for any number of a dozen reasons is not content and constantly disappointed you can both look at the same circumstance and see the same colleague get the same raise move into the same house their kids now get into uh, the college of choice and one can celebrate it and say well done well done good for you and the other can only see it through the eyes of sickness why them why them and not me The Hebrew word is similar. It's about the eye. The Hebrew word is tarut ayin. Tarut ayin is a word that literally means narrowness of vision. So when it comes to experiencing envy like Cain experienced envy, it has something to do with our eyes, something to do with how we see life. And and is this not what our Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount? Listen to these words. The eye is the lamp Of the body. (laughs) So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, if you see things through a diseased vision, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is why, for ages, envy has been called the green-eyed monster. Because green is the color of sickness, illness, disease. And to have envy means you look at life in such a way as to sicken the soul of your interior. It's the green-eyed monster. Have you ever looked long into the face of the green-eyed monster? Because it's not just about wanting something that your neighbor has. It's about actually even wanting ill will to befall the one who gets it. Thomas Aquinas had this to say about envy. Aquinas says, envy is feeling as the feeling of sorrow for another person's good. Have you ever, I know you won't admit it, I won't admit it, but have you ever hmm, had an ill feeling and wanted actually the one who has been blessed to somehow suffer for it? Yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah. As I take that as an amen, right? <laughs> yeah. Because that is kind of the sickness that happens within us. Cain reminds me of another story. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 15, we're told Jesus tells this story about this this man who has two sons. And he loves them both, and the one younger son says, it's time for me to... Make a name for myself. I'm I'm moving out. Give me what is coming to me. And he took his inheritance and he went away and he blew it. He spent it on on prostitutes and what the King James calls uh, riotous living. Seriously blew it. And when he had reached the very bottom and reached the so far at the very bottom that he found himself eating among the pigs, decided to go home to take a crack at returning home. He comes home and his father is so elated that he has come home that he throws a party. His father's heart is full. He hasn't even questioned him yet. He hasn't asked him uh, for the receipts of where he spent, the things that he spent. He hasn't asked if he's changed his heart yet. But in his unfinished, unresolved life, he had come home broken and the father throws a party. He kills the fatted calf. And we're told later as the party ensues, the older brother. Once he puts all the pieces together and realizes that, are you kidding me? We're throwing a party for the one who has behaved like this. The older brother sitting outside of the party where he could hear the music, the laughter, the dancing, he can smell the bacon. Well, or hamburger. And he. He's so seething in his his envy that he's pouting and the father comes to him and says, What are you doing? There's a party. Come and celebrate. It's your brother. And he says, I have done everything right. Everything you've ever asked of me, I've done it. I'm the dutiful son. Anything you've ever asked, I've been there. I've never complained. I've never, never caused trouble for you. I've never embarrassed the family. And yet you've never done anything like this for me. You have never killed the fatted calf for me. You've never thrown a party for me. And yet this son of yours doesn't even have the courage to call him his own brother. This son of yours comes home and you you put on the dog. And the father says, you're not seeing this right. Yes, you've done everything right. Of course you have. You've been that one. He always follows the rules, never bends or breaks the rules. You've been that one, and for that I love you. And everything that I've always had, it's always been yours. It always still is yours, everything. But this has nothing to do with you. Because your brother, he changed the language on him. Not my son, but your brother was dead, and now he He lives. I can love him and love you in ways that are unique to each of you. And enter in maybe the whole point. In chapter 4 of Genesis, we're we're introduced to a God who takes individuals one at a time. And I don't know if you have been looking into the face of the green-eyed monster or if there's any struggle that you have experienced because of perhaps being treated unfairly or unjustly and and, and you're worried about the one who is blessed and and yet here is your condition and and you've been waiting and working and nothing has come together. Understand this. Their life may have nothing to do with you. It may be that for 10,000 reasons God knows what God is doing in caring and blessing and affirming them in this particular season of life and god may also know what god is doing by choosing to withhold the blessings that you want right now or at least by thursday so how do you deal with it i mean how do you actually deal with envy when it's down in the bones and you've got a kind of a soul sickness well i I sometimes think about The teaching of Jesus when he said, look, of all the things that matter most, here's what matters most. you Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about it. Seek first the kingdom. I had a professor long ago in seminary who translated that verse a little differently. He translated it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's okaying of you. It's kind of what righteousness means, being okayed. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's okaying of you. In other words, you do you. You do you. And and I will expect them to do them. And right here in chapter 4, we're introduced to an amazing concept in this human saga that's still kind of unfolding. It's the, the beginning of this human saga. And here it is. God will deal with God's humans on God's terms, not ours. God will deal with God's humans on God's terms, not theirs. It's probably something good to remember the next time we find ourselves looking long into the face of the green-eyed monster. Which leads us to the second stopping point, the second anchor in this sermon, which is not just green-eyed monsters, but crouching tigers. I love this image. The text reads... The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. I love this image. I don't know about you, but when I sin, when I am tempted, it's not because temptation has come knocking loud on the door. Hello? Would you like to come out and play? It's not because temptation comes ringing the doorbell. Ding dong, hey, I thought I'd let you know that I'm here. Let's, let's go take a spin around the block. No, temptation doesn't work that way. Temptation doesn't ring the doorbell. Temptation lurks at the door. It lurks. It sneaks up like a, like a ninja. Or maybe the better word in another translation is it crouches. It hides, it crouches, it waits. And as it crouches, I can't help but think of a predatory cat. A crouching tiger, a crouching lion, a cheetah. And and, and every time I think about this this phrase about temptation is crouching at the door, I'm reminded of a, a safari that we took, my family and I did once. And we were out in the middle of the Maasai Mara, this beautiful pristine part of the world and seeing all these amazing animals in their natural habitat and one morning it's early in the morning and we're in this open air jeep and 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 we're moving along and we're talking we're still got coffee going you know we're just kind of chit chatting the boys are talking laura and i are talking and our maasai guide who's driving the truck stops the truck and says shh well we tended to do what he said He looked up on the hill just about two or three hundred yards away, and there was a group of impala. But they were all standing, frozen, looking in one common direction. We watched him as he watched them, and he began to prowl across the horizon, and he saw, and there it is, ah, cheetah. We looked, and it was hard to see, but eventually emerging above the grass line and beneath, it was prowling, looking for breakfast, waiting for the one impala who wasn't paying attention, who was vulnerable, slow, not attentive to the surroundings. And in one motion, I tell you, it happened so quickly, he pounced and he began to spring and take off after this this group or this vulnerable and so we started the truck back and we tried to find it by the time we caught we lost it by the time we caught up to it it was already halfway through his breakfast and i i do have video but i'm not going to show you today i do i promise and because you've got to eat lunch and it may not so and i think of temptation that way because Temptation is most dangerous in the places not where we're looking out, not where we're on guard, but in the places where we are vulnerable and unattentive to our weaknesses. It prowls like a predatory cat waiting, and it's patient, it's patient. It will not rush upon you. It's patient, waiting for the moment that your guard is down. For Cain, he was feeling the seething, envy this 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 anger this resentment but he he wasn't attending to it it was just there growing growing until the right moment so i think this is this is what jesus meant when jesus said look you listen listen you have heard it said to the folks of old don't murder and that's a good thing don't murder he says but i say to you do not be angry with your brother So Jesus said, don't even be angry. And we back up and we say, don't be angry. Are you kidding? That's very hard. I mean, being angry sometimes is a good thing. Anger sometimes expresses how deeply you care about a thing. But in the New Testament, there are a couple of ways to think about anger. There is one word, thumos, and thumos is a word that means quick anger. It's like if you were to take a piece of straw and set it on fire and flame up real quick and then it'd go away. And that anger is one kind of anger, but the anger Jesus is talking about when he says do not be angry is thumos, is a orge anger. Orge anger is an anger that sits there and grows and it seethes and it doesn't just stay anger because anger gone unchecked turns into bitterness and bitterness gone unchecked turns into hatred and hatred gone unchecked looks for an opportunity to bring somebody down through word or deed. And Jesus says, look, I know that you would have never imagined that you would take someone's life, but you've begun that journey when you don't get rid of anger because the sin is just waiting, like a crouching tiger or cheetah, waiting for you to be vulnerable by not being attentive to your own interior. So Cain said to his brother in the next line, Let's go out to the field. And when they were out in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and Abel and killed him. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll ruin my life today. I think I'll sin big today. Instead, we wake up every day and are rarely attentive to that vulnerable thing that is in us that can grow to some self-destruction. What is it for you? It may be envy, but it may not be envy. It may be pride. It may be paranoia. It, it, it may be unforgiveness. It may. What is the weak spot, the chink in your armor, the, the Achilles heel? Where is it that the crouching tiger of your own sin is waiting to leap upon you? Then we move into perhaps... The most tragic part of the whole conversation. The next line begins our next section brother's keeper. Brother's keeper. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This may be the most provocative line of the entire story. Am I my brother's keeper? Don't forget what's just happened in the story. In the story, what has happened already is we have seen in chapter 3 that there is this unraveling of this perfect, harmonious existence that we call Eden. We, were, we started out beautiful. We started out just perfect. And yet it's unraveled, and now east of Eden we're seeking to answer the question, what will life look like outside of the garden? And by raising this question, what am I my brother's keeper? It raises a question for contemporary readers today. Do we have any responsibility for one another at all? Or east of Eden, is this a world of fierce individualism? I'll take care of me and mine, you take care of you and yours. And yet something powerful happens in this text. Because God is not finished with this vision that God has has deep in God's own mind about the way things can be. There's little evidences, right? Because one of the kids is a tiller and one of the kids is a keeper. He's not finished. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, he clothes them so as to be protected. So he kicks them out, but still loves them. He's not quite finished with them yet. And we ask ourselves are we our brother's keeper? Or is the best way to survive simply to focus on who matters most in my small circle or sphere? Something interesting happens in this text. This entire story of Cain and Abel includes the word brother seven times. It's a pattern that repeats all through Genesis and the Hebrew Bible for that matter. Especially Genesis, it's called a heptatic pattern. Patterns of seven, 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 seven. It's a perfect number. In this story of Cain and Abel, the word brother appears seven times. And at the end of all those brothers, Cain has failed at being the first big brother, failed miserably. And when he sees his punishment that he will be sent to be a wanderer around the earth, he's in fear, and he says, God, somebody's going to kill me. I will not make it out of this alive. I have failed, but I, I am, I'm, a doom, I'm doomed. I'm a goner. And God says, not so, because if anybody lays a hand on you, I will pay them back sevenfold. It's as if God is saying to Cain and to Cain's other siblings, When you fail at being brother or sister i will show you how and in that moment god endeavors to brother him in his exile and he places a mark on cain a mysterious mark that somehow this other civilization that already exists and already has an idea of how to interpret written communication is able to read Another unexplained action. And he sends them with this mark to protect him. And I can't help but think of what you and I are going to do in this room on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. On Wednesday night, it's Ash Wednesday. It's one of the most meaningful worship services that we do here. We gather and we think about our brokenness. We think about the places where we have looked long into the face of the green-eyed monster. We look at our sin and we confess it privately before the Lord. And there's a moment in that service where the ministerial staff will place the mark of the cross upon your forehead or the back of your hand. And it's made out of the ash from last year's palm branches, from Palm Sunday. And we place it there to say, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. But we place it in the mark of the cross because it is the intersection of guilt and grace. And Cain is expelled to go be a wanderer upon the earth, but he has a mark on him that will remind him and everyone who sees him that he, his whole life and ours as well, well, we stand at the intersection of guilt and grace. And I don't know today how you're hearing this news, whether it's just news or good news or the most amazing great news you've ever heard. But I can tell you this, you too stand at the intersection of guilt and grace. It may be that the, the, the way to wrap this kind of time of worship up is, is a prayer. Maybe it's a prayer in which in this next moment or so, you're able to say before God, look, I confess to you that I have been looking long into the face of the green-eyed monster. I, I have envied, I have, I have an eye problem, and, and my eye is making me sick down in my bones because of the way I see people and see events and the way I interpret life. I feel like a victim always. I feel like it's not fair. And I confess to you that that is making me vulnerable. It's making me vulnerable to the crouching tigers that are prowling all around me. And I will confess to you that there are moments when when they pounce upon me and they devour me and I have not yet mastered them. But I am seeking the grace that comes at this intersection of guilt and grace. I'm seeking to be made new today. I'm seeking to rekindle the partnership that you designed at creation in which you breathed into me my very first breath. Redeem me today. Pray that and be drawn Godward. Let's pray. God, we pause for just a moment just to take in all that we have considered, just to sit for a moment, to drink in the grace of this day. For none of us make it very far in any of our days without recognizing that we are made of dust and that we are guilty. But for the joy of hearing that we are at an intersection of guilt and grace, that, we, that, you, that you have pro- provided for us a way to be redeemed, a way to be in partnership with you, we give our thanks today. But there may be someone here, Holy Father, who, who is on this campus and, and they're hearing these words that are good news to their ears and, and yet they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to pray, don't know how to yield, don't know how to give their life back over to you. In these moments of of dedication, we pray that your spirit would take over, that it would move in such a way that they feel grace leading them home. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray, amen. Amen.